Enterprise Intelligence is a weekly video series that talks to industry experts, global thought leaders, and seasoned knowledge workers about how they're tackling their information challenges, embracing new technologies, and moving the needle on performance. Hosted by Shiny Docs founder and CEO, Jason Cassidy. I'm joined by Alona Koti. She is the former foreign diplomat with more than 25 years of information governance, privacy, cybersecurity, and GRC assurance experience. Alona is a teaching fellow at the University of Dundee in Scotland, a fellow of the Institute of Information Management in Africa, a past president of ARMA International, and CEO of ThinkLinks as a keynote speaker, multi-board director, teaching fellow, and published writer, Alona is a recognized leader in the information profession. Thanks for joining me today, Alona. This is fantastic to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's really great to, to connect with you and to be able to share some insights, for sure. Yeah, it, and I, I love using the full, I know that you're humble and, and it's, it's overwhelming, the full introduction and title, but that is the breadth of information governance, and it's, it has evolved a lot over the last 10 years. Perhaps you could talk, talk a little bit first about what you've seen the evolution in the last 10 years of information governance. Absolutely. It's, it's changed drastically. And, you know, I think, we, you know, we're all aware we started in paper, right? Yeah, and over the past 10 years, our systems have, you know, emerged, but it's not just going from like a document management system. We also suddenly had all these rules and regulations enacted from a privacy perspective. So privacy has been a very significant driver within the information management community as a whole, especially driven by GDPR in Europe and then now CCPA, PRA here in California as well. And hopefully more countries, you know, are definitely like adopting some of these rules and regulations. But that has been, I think, one of the biggest uh, integrations uh, as well, besides, you know, the litigation factors and on why, you know, we need to maintain appropriate information and, and e-discovery and, and how to find it through forensics and so forth. Yeah, it's it's big when you think about GDPR and, and the California uh, the privacy, these are things that organizations weren't really ready for. They didn't have the readiness, let alone the ability to execute with them. So they have to do new things as far as their data understanding that goes beyond traditional records, classification, disposal. Uh, where do they start with that? And then how do they ensure that they're complying? So it's a great question. It's you know, And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that we have experienced. Uh, with within the field itself too is a lot of people don't know where to get started and if you you know were trained as a formal records manager what additional training did you need right because before it went from you know being highly organized and maybe knowing some computer skills to almost going okay now we have to go to you know almost a programming level of capacity. Now we suddenly have to have legal knowledge. Now we have to be auditors, right? So here's all these additional skill sets, you know, for, for the records management people who, you know, have been doing it and who know the information very well. But at the same time, it's, you know, how, how do you classify you know, data, information, records, because there is a distinction. So in a lot of cases, you know, I would definitely start with a data map, um, get a document management system, and then hopefully work your way up to AI, but it's not a simple process. You know, one of my colleagues used to always say, there's nothing artificial about AI by any means. So it's it's a multi-tiered, many-eared process to, to really make sure that you are complying. So, so self-serving, a, a, a data map, 
for Shiny Docs is, is where we start. Uh, can you get started without a data understanding? No, it's, it's very challenging. And this is why I always say you can't do privacy or security well without knowing where your data is, who has access to it, and what your information is. Because I find it very hard to believe for organizations that are like, oh, we have, you know, this world-class privacy program, we have this, you know, security initiative. Okay, but you haven't even done an inventory of what systems exist, where at any given point in time, you can't produce one document showing me, okay, these are our core systems and that type of information in there. So I don't know what organizations are doing that haven't at least established a very preliminary data map. And I, I love that you start there because it takes us back to a previous conversation that we had just about how analysts might cover this space where they'll they'll treat file analytics, which might be very closely related to uh, like a, a information map, uh, completely separate to uh, something like a document management tool, completely separate to something like an enterprise search tool, they'll have completely separate quadrants or waves or whatever associated with this and no overlap in vendors and no overlap in strategies. Do we need to have a convergence for the inter information governance professional before we can really start seriously tackling this? And should yeah. that fall on us as IG professionals? That's a great question. And honestly, rather than convergence, I almost think you need to take a step back, right? Because the whole purpose of doing this is to do records management well. And if you have all these systems, all these features that do everything besides that, you're actually distracting from what the core goal is. Because you can say, oh yeah, I can do web pages, I can do this, but how many people are doing true records management with an organization? Technically, the concept is very simple, but unless you have the system that can do that and automate retention, it can be very involved, very time consuming, very manual, even though it's still semi-automated. But I think that you, you really need to step back and look at what those core, you know, records management features are before you keep buying, you know, additional modules or these advanced systems that with features that you may not even need, nor, you know, distract from what the purpose is that you're already trying to do. I, I like that. Like it's, it, I was talking to Todd Chernikoff lately, and he he mentioned mm -hmm. ISO 15489, which is a core ISO document describing records management. And that has always been true ever since it was first launched. Everything about it is, is stuff that makes sense for records management. And in order, the only thing that we've needed to do, well, not the only thing, but one of the key things is how do we bring the right information to bear so that we can start applying those principles in that standard. Um, and I think that correlates with what you were saying is that the records management standards are reasonably straightforward. They're well understood. The real tricky part is how do you align your business data mm -hmm. with those standards? So that, and that's a really great point. And one of the things with 15489 is I think that you have to go back and we have to reassess what the definition of a record truly is. Because I've started using my own definition, which is a record is a notation that a transaction has occurred, right? I don't care if it was done in the course of business, it's, you know, if it was done, you know, for, for whatever reason, right? It happened. And a judge is not going to care whether or not you declared a record, whether it was, you know, a pencil, you know, comment on a post-it note or in the margins, or if there's something that was, you know, a metadata or an audit trail, right? If it exists, especially in digital format, you have to realize that there's some very capable forensic experts out there that are going to find it. 
right? So that is one thing that we have to do. We have to change our mindset to transition away from what we think a record is. You know, and this is why information management comes up. Well, and what I like about the idea of let's talk about information management as a superset for this is because then that allows the things that are records to avail themselves and then be treated appropriately. Let's start with, okay, where are the, where's the data? How do we recombine it so that we treat it as information so that then the records can avail themselves from that? And it's, and it's not a one-step situation. It's not a one-product approach. It is a strategy first, and then you have to layer on technologies and other supporting factors. Absolutely, because data management is very different as well, right? Then you're taking data, which, you know, without the context is just, you know, just data, right? It's binary. You know, you, you have some very, very basic components, but it's when you query that or like even with a database, that's been a question that, you know, my students ask me a lot as well is like, well, you could technically manage it as a whole or as some of the outputs. I'm like, there's, you know, there's give and take, right? But there's that balance. And a lot of times, you know, the standards are there. They're great to start on. Uh, you know, everything, you know, like in the DOD 5015.2 is, you know, those should be core features, right? And that's how I look at them. If they're there, those are expected. So if you've qualified for DOD, I shouldn't even have to ask you, you know, oh, can I check in a document, right? Can I upload multiple files? You know, it would be to the reason of how many files can I upload, right? But that to me is like baseline. And fine, you know, once, once I build on that. But one of the things is that the DOD hasn't been updated. Oh, goodness. I think it's well over 10 years. Like, I, I actually try to get my students to read it, but the government link site is down half the time. You know, then they expect you to go in through these, you know, very, like, big hurdles, and I can't even access it. First, it was, I think, like, international students, like, or Chinese students couldn't, like, get to it. But then it started being, like, very difficult. And I'm like, okay, if this is such a really great standard, then why can't people even access the latest version of it without having to go somewhere else for a copy of it? So, you know, I, I voiced my, you know, concern there to the JITC uh, group, uh, probably quarterly, <laughs> you know, where I'm like, hey, it's me again. Uh, so, so that's one thing. And then, you know, some of the other standards too, it's, you know, is there flexibility? Because that's one of the concepts, right? There needs to be that balance, you know, between security and functionality. If you don't have that, how are my users going to do things? How are they going to want to do records management? It's already hard enough to, you know, tell people to, you know, be good record stewards, let alone let's add all these technology hurdles and extra process steps into it to make their days even more difficult and time consuming. Yeah, it's, I like that you approach it too from the end users because the the old way of saying thy shalt do this because executives mm -hmm. have bought into it clearly didn't work. We've created far more information that's not eligible for records management or information governance by virtue of the fact that it's bespoke and all over the place. So we need to figure out how to how to manage that. And the, the fact that when AI started to mature, the machines are fast enough and now the, we can start creating models and there's open source projects and all that. But people wanted to skip to the end for AI and say, let's let's make the AI do the things that the humans could never do rather than saying, let's just figure out what we have. Let's help, let the AI help us figure out what we have and then see how we can march towards having the AI do the things that humans couldn't do. It, did you see that? I, I know I saw that in the market where, where people thought that AI was just gonna come in and start doing all the stuff that humans refuse to do. 
And I always wondered, why would it AI be smarter or harder working than a human is and, and more proactive? I, I would like to think that the reason why the humans didn't do it is the same reason why we can't program the AI right now to do the, the things that the humans didn't do, if you know what I mean. Does that, does that make sense? No, no, absolutely. And that's that's a really you know great insight there too, because my, my first dissertation topic was in visual classification and, and vector-based. And I was really big on text agnostic you know, format, which I still believe in, but there's theory and there's always practice. You know, I, <laughs> having run through the, the doctoral work, there's a lot of theory that you look at, which, you know, it, it it kind of changes the way that you think about things too, right? And you're like, what is the underlying issue? And you were absolutely correct where everyone wanted to jump to the end project. So it's just like, okay, well, when we you know go to that kind of capacity, yes, you can get the AI to do things, but there's a lot of training involved. And that's what people who haven't done this before don't realize. You still need to spend a substantial amount of time to train the system to get it to do what you're supposed to. You know, and that's that's a big step that a lot of people I think overlook or if it doesn't work right away, well, well, why? Well, then if it makes a mistake, you have to fix that, you know, or you have to change a little bit of configuration to do that. Now, on the other hand, in some cases, if you're just looking for, you know, like high level documents and, and for the AI to form clusters, that's great. You know, because again, I think that that's where we need the help as humans because looking at tens, hundreds, if not millions of documents is just, it's not feasible anymore. We, we can't do that and we can't approach that. So it's finding that right balance of technology that's hopefully within you know, an organization's budget because AI is not inexpensive. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's humans plus like the technology itself in some cases is quote unquote free, but you need the humans in order to drive it. You need to have the data sets well-established in order to validate it. And you need to have the wherewithal within the leadership. And I think that leads it to the next question is, is uh, like how many organizations, uh, the executives, for example, a CIO who generally like to think in terms of projects that are six months to 18 months out. If you're not showing a payback in the, that time frame, then it's hard to get the investment in it for most organizations. And these projects that you and I are talking about right now, this understanding data at scale, like perhaps petabytes of file share data or these types of things, is not something that's going to be done in three to six months. Uh, how does a typical organization that has a huge amount of information like that need to change their leadership or how would their leadership have to change in order to start thinking about what needs to get done to that information? For sure. And I, I always say this on pretty much in every webinar, I'm, I'm a big Doug Laney fan. And he wrote a book called Infonomics. And I always say that if you could give an executive a book, you know, to show them what, you know, everything that you need to know, and, and he's a former Gartner analyst. So uh, it's, it's, it's fairly well written. And he, you know, has some great points, but he brings up the point of quantifying information, right? How can you show value on your data? And this is something so, you know, we have tried to do as records managers, information managers, just knowledge workers in general. It's very hard to take these intangible components and say how we created value with knowledge, right? So we, we've struggled with that. But as much as possible, if there's information professionals out there, if you can create metrics, something that you can measure. Ideally, some programs will have dashboards built in or reports or things that you can show. 
But if it's, you know, for example, if this process saves X amount of time, great. Okay, well, you know the time. What is the salary of an individual who is doing that? How many process steps did you go through? What, you know, percentage did you save? Those are things that you can quantify. Uh, you know, otherwise, you know, there's always the, the, the true data analytics people, but those are slightly different. However, if you take a combination of the data analytics and just the general processes that a typical information professional encounters on a day, Try to see what's common and what you can report on and share those reports with your senior management to show them the value that you bring to the organization. Yeah, Alona, I think that's really powerful to, to, to go there, to really explore how the analytics associated with this attaches these processes to the front of business, to the profitability of the business, to the ability to take on more work. Because I mean, like if you save people an hour a day, but you're not planning on firing anybody, then nobody gets any savings. So you should have the capacity then to take on more work, which means you at at some point you'll get more profitability. At some point you will you will you'll grow, and it does take some. It takes data literacy. It takes an investment in that, and you have to kind of see beyond just a hard cost savings and then buying less disk storage or something like that in order to wade into those waters. Absolutely. And, that, and that's one of the things too. So when I'm, I'm very big on surveys and when uh, once I fully launched ThinkLinks here, uh, it'll be a lot of survey focused data. But what I found with various clients is that I find that 20% of the organization outside of records managers will typically, you know, they'll spend you know, more than 10 hours a week just searching for information, which, you know, if you're the records people, I would expect that, right? But if you're just an ordinary person spending that much time looking for information, there's something wrong. You know, and it's that Pareto rule, it's like the 80-20 split. And there's something like, okay, well, again, if I quantify those salaries, I would know, you know, how much someone was spending. But if you're, you know, spending 20% of your time, you're making $100,000 a year, right? That's 20 some odd thousand dollars that is just on searching. But if you put that time into being productive versus looking for stuff, again, that's that's like you said, you do have the ability to quantify that metric and to say, okay, well, we're going to shift that time to doing actual work that creates an output versus just overhead. Yeah, and it's, it's sometimes it's opaque because we're so familiar with the overhead feeling like it's part of the work. Uh, an example that was given to me by, by a heavy asset company was, they suggested that about 10% of their engineering time was actually spent doing engineering. The rest of it was collecting information to do their calculations, to do their, their engineering, if you will, that, and then sending people out to validate the information and then they actually get to work and, and they spend a little bit of time collaborating too to make sure what they're doing is correct. And it seems to me that if you could give them the right piece of information at the right time, here mm-hmm. is the as built, here is the last engineering certification of this asset, here is the maintenance history, here is our supply chain and our everything that's in our warehouse right now that's available to to fix this particular asset. And here's the last time somebody's gone out and done a vibration measurement and it all just landed on their desk the same day that the out of band vibration reading landed on their desk, then they could get down to engineering business immediately. But because the problem lands on their desk and now they got to go do the research, it might be days 
it might be weeks before they can actually start doing the proprietary work that they learned in university in order to go and fix that asset. Absolutely. No, I, th I think that that's something that's really important. And one of my primary partners, they're also an engineering firm, right? And we look at these architectural drawings now and it's how do we classify them? Well, text blocks. Okay, well, right now, okay, what tool is out there that can easily classify one of those text blocks? We're having a really big challenge with that. And if you look at types of records like that with, you know, the engineering drawings, those, those are challenging, right? And then oh, they also want GIS now. So it's like the geolocation, so everything's interfaced. So that is like one of the most common, you know, issues that I'm facing right now is trying to find a solution that's semi-affordable. Now there are solutions, but they're, they're not inexpensive either. So it's like, how do you, you know, find some sort of workaround and some compromise that, you know, can limit, you know, human data entry. But, you know, especially if you're looking at the older ones, you're, you're the machines aren't going to read that as well. You don't know the quality of, you know, where somebody kept it in a basement, you know, right? These, you know, they're already falling apart, a lot of this, but that's the whole thing is, you know, where where can you find that right blend of technology versus human time to do that? And I, I you need both, you really do. It's very hard. And I'm a very big advocate of going back to document controllers where you take those few, you know, documents that you have. I mean, in some cases it could be, like 10 to maybe 30% if you're a highly regulated organization and you spend the time classifying that, but with everything else, you put it on a standard retention and let it roll off because there's, there's too much. You cannot micromanage any, everything like you used to. It's not possible. Oh, for sure. And it's in using the old traditional mechanism where you bring in like a big five consultant and then they have a number of humans pouring over your data like it's 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 massively expensive and certainly a kind of a wink and a nod at the camera like shiny docs approaches this from an automation point of view and what what we butt up against though quite often is is the efficacy of yeah let's say 20 or 30 percent of the the drawings that are out there might have like a scratch across them. It had this job number and somebody scratched it out and then put an arrow to another job number. And they say, well, your, your AI doesn't find that. Therefore, yeah, we're, we're skeptical of this. I'm like, yeah, but it found it for the other 70% of the drawings, which otherwise would just kind of be out there in that block of stuff that just has this rolling, maybe 20 year arbitrary retention wouldn't it be cool if we just we understood 70% of that? So there is, there's there's just not a trust yet. There's not this strategy now Absolutely. that people are willing to re, not replace humans, but augment the humans with something until it's more perfect, I guess. And you and you completely need that secondary oversight because if a human saw that and you go, Well, I have noticed these on, you know, probably 70%, maybe we should add another field. And then you could capture that. And that's why, again, like big on the visual classification capacity, because if you use that versus traditional OCR, you have the ability to add in other things. But imagine giving a computer a set of eyes. That's, that's how I look at it. Is if, if they could see, they would go, oh, okay, because it's not just based on the text. It's as much the white space in some cases and the positioning of another, you know, spacing and vector spaces to another. So I think, you know, there, there's some really exciting things, you know, that, that are coming out and some very talented programmers that are out there and, and neat little technologies, but it's, it's just very, very challenging. You know, how do you get through that backlog in particular?
because it's not, you know, it is day forward, but even for like cities and counties, think, think of that, you know, how do you make this information accessible to the public? Yeah, it is, it is an interesting conundrum. And at some point, though, I feel like there might be a bit of an avalanche. And I'd love your thought on this, because you, you look at the industry closely, is that um, obviously not everybody's going to invest in this until it's more mature. But the organizations that do take a chance and they do get that win, like imagine if their engineers were 10 times more productive. Imagine if their safety associated with their jobs were 10 times, it was 10 times safer and you were, you had less technicians operating with more confidence. You're, you're, all of a sudden now your competition is, will never catch up to you when the, you get the right information at the right time. So it's kind of like, who's going to blink first because whoever times it right is going to, in my opinion, where whether it's an oil and gas or in utilities or whatever industry, whoever times that right to get these optimizations with their information is going to get such a massive head start that it'll be hard for I people think that to first person, Absolutely. And one of the things to realize too is, right, strategic competitive advantage, right, it, it works until it becomes a commodity. You know, and I think Nicholas Carr back in his, uh, goodness, so long ago, what was it, 1990-something, in um, Does IT Matter? In that wonderful article where he pointed out that, you know, IT is now a commodity. So even though, you know, AI and everything else is cutting edge, though, at what point does it become a commodity and a necessity and something that is an expectation? And at that point, it's who still hasn't adapted onward because the, the competitors are so far ahead at that point in time. But like you said, if you're even just, you know, an organization or a mid-sized company that is looking to gain an advantage, look to your internal information first and start using that. Information is one of the most important strategic vital assets that you have, but how can you quantify it? How can you take that information to, you know, to maximize it and generate value from that data? And Doug Laney's always like, oh, share it with others. He's like, information is not taxable just yet. <laughs> I'm sure that'll come a day, but, but what can you do to leverage it? Obviously within privacy rules and regulations, but even knowing more about your own company can still put you further ahead of your competitors. I, I completely agree because that is we just we never realize how much time that we just spend collaborating every meeting that we have every time we exchange an email and that is that essential to actually doing the profit making task of my organization or the task that is driving the biggest yield from the organization probably not so anything we can do to minimize those those things has right. a payback at some point. And that's what, you know, where I think, you know, with information governance too, I think we've been talking about it for so long, but how many of us have really done it? How many of us have implemented? There's, I see a lot of policies out there. I see a lot of procedures. I know they're not implemented, right? You know, so, you know, I'm very big on the action plans, but at the same point, if you have an action plan and a task, I'm big on tasking it to somebody too, because at that point you can see who is in charge of it, right? And if you're senior management, you're like, wow, this person has, you know, 700 hours of, of this task to them for, you know, three months, right? And it's like, that's not really feasible, is it? Mm -hmm. You know, and that way too is, you know, if you're an organization, you can actually establish like, okay, well, there's, uh, you know, we need more people, right? If you've justified that and how much time it takes, you can, again, use that information internally to showcase where you might need more teamwork, more, you know, just more machine capacity. But that's where 
I think too, and you see timelines that are associated with those tasks so you can enact them. And that's where, you know, with information governance, I'm like, okay, it's, it's one thing to say you're going to govern it, but I'm very big on using the term information assurance because that's where you start guaranteeing and you start showing measurable results that are auditable and they have actual, you know, effects and expectations and outputs versus, you know, just the governance aspect of it. Like, yeah, we have a policy, but we don't really follow it. Yeah, and that's that is to me the biggest payback is when you're acting with confidence. Not only did you act, you can validate that what you did was indeed correct. And when ultimately, like a a less exciting test is when you're in front of the court and they ask you, did you manage this in accordance to policy? And you not only say yes, but you actually demonstrate. Here, this is the demonstration of what we did. Here's the data, the dashboards that that provides that. It it massively increases your credibility, regardless of whether you're right or wrong in the litigation. But litigations are won and lost by by credibility. I'm a big show me person, you know, right? Because I've I've essentially become an auditor as well. You know, it's, it's management consultant and auditing, really, because it's, <laughs> you know, that, that's that's what happens. You know, yes, okay, here here's the underlying records principles, but at the same point, how am I, you know, establishing measures and controls to make sure it was really done? And like you said, when you're in front of a judge, they're not going to care. You know, yeah, well, we kind of did this, okay, but did you? Well, sort of. If you have something, you know, that is partially automated, and this is why assurance, you know, to the automation component is very critical with this, because you have those reports that can be generated and those audit trails and that, and that continuous chain of command. So there is no dispute. It would be very hard to dispute you in a court of law, you know, to show if something didn't happen. And if it didn't happen, that is where the gap would be. And hopefully, you know, the opposing side would be focusing in on that, right? Because that's where the breach or the or whatever security gap issued. Uh, So I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for us to shift to that mindset from, you know, governance to assurance to make it a lot more concrete and and tangible, you know, for something, you know, that that's information related. Yeah, I like that because it's because we're touching on so many outcomes, so many paybacks, if you will, like obviously cybersecurity is on the top of people's minds right now. We've, we've touched on employee efficiency. We've kind of dabbled a little around at cost save, hard cost savings, perhaps on disk and, and other things. But uh, to take it full circle, we started off with, with GDPR and, and talking about privacy. Is privacy maybe going to be a big domino that starts a lot of people thinking about this more aggressively? It will all depend on what the states do. And right now, one of the things that I see is like, okay, so you have all these laws, but you don't have enough auditors to even go in and, and audit against, you know, the laws that are in place. So unless there's something that is so blatantly like mis, you know, construed or abused, right? And a consumer complains about it. I mean, how are all these auditors going to be in organizations to ensure that this is happening, right? Before we had Safe Harbor, which was, you know, like a self-audit, but we know how those work, right? Like, yeah, sure, I'm complying. Not really, right? You know, <laughs> I'm sure some companies did, but I mean, that was kind of, you know, a bit of an excuse to, you know, give like a little bit of, you know, self-proclamation to say that there's compliance, you know, and, and if you have truly sensitive data, whether it's, you know, internal or information that's sensitive or especially consumer data, uh, then you should really be stepping it up a bit. 
but that's I, I don't see how the, the states or governments have the ability right now to enforce this type of, of law properly. For yeah, it, it is tough. It is something I, I agree is that it needs to be a plurality, like the idea that it is people recognize the payback associated with it, whether hard costs or soft costs. People realize the importance of the cybersecurity. Obviously, the privacy is important, but it can't be just because there's a policeman or an auditor that's waiting in the wings. It has to be because our social contract just says that this is the responsible way to work and people are going to want to buy my products or service more because I'm operating as a organization with integrity under the privacy legislation that exists. There's a big concept within IT too. It's about trust, right? If if you can't be trusted, why would you want to give your data? Now, granted, if you're you know using an app on a phone and really want something badly, or my children grab my phone, which you know they shouldn't, right? And they download apps and things too. You know, then you're you're willing to give away so much of your freedoms in many cases just by downloading an app. But you are correct; it's the right thing to do. And as a company, that's what you should basically be basing your whole you know program around. Privacy should be an inherent you know, re responsibility of the organization. Now, like I said, you know, having done my dissertation in privacy from the perspective of software developers, I can tell you nobody bothered to train the software developers on privacy and what their rules and obligations were. M much as most people didn't train people on records management and then they were surprised when they didn't comply. So training goes a long way. And if you do have these software developers building these you know, very complex systems, explain to them why they can't share this information. Explain to them you know, what a retention period is, why this may have to be deleted. You know, Build that in. And you know, explain to them also too what's important and what isn't. And it's just very, very challenging when you, you know, have this kind of capacity and and people don't do it, you know, because it, it is the right thing to do. And I'd like to see, you know, hopefully more organizations do that. Yeah, it, it is something that I, I'm excited about it being just part of the normal social contract where it, it, because I appreciate, like, certainly uh, coming from a software company, the pressures that a software developer, like, if they're the ones who are recording the vibration readings or the settings from the wellhead, uh, probably the project manager for that oil and gas company isn't saying, uh, do this software, and oh, by the way, make sure to do information governance and compliance and privacy associated with it, 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 it has to be inherent in what they do to say, okay, for me to deliver this result to you, it's going to take me three days because there's one day of R&D mm -hmm. on, on the actual task to control that machinery, but then there's another day to do the information governance component, and there's another day to do the privacy by design component, and we have to be good with that because there is an obvious payback when better than when you get audited, it's when nobody gets injured, when you survive your litigation, when like there's all these amazing obvious paybacks that aren't obvious when the project manager just says, hey, can you write this code for this thing? For sure. And that's why, you know, that's the whole purpose of like privacy by design, which was, you know, developed by Anne Kabuki and as a theory, uh, she was the former privacy commissioner of Canada, right? Because you guys are so much better at privacy than we are and, and you value it. You know, I used to always say like the state of Florida back in the day, they used to sell driver's license information for about like, I don't know, 70, $80,000 or $80 million. And they actually considered that like income for the state selling people's personal data. Like really? 
so how many companies do that? And it's just something that needs to be taken seriously. But if you are proactive as a company and you start with that good faith effort, it's not that hard to comply with the other mandates that come down. You know, sometimes, of course, the lawmakers don't understand technology and how it works. So sometimes they'll, you know, come up with some, you know, pretty ridiculous requests or say, oh, hey, you should do this. And we're like, yeah, it's not how a database works, but I guess we'll <laughs> find some other way to do it. But it's built in. And the other thing too, it's not just one person, right? It's not just the developer. You need the team. You need, you know, people who are qualified in privacy, just because you're an attorney or a compliance person also doesn't mean you've been trained in privacy. And the other thing to realize is that privacy means different things to different people around the world, right? You know, think of gender, right? Think of other countries that might have privacy concerns. Think of age groups, right? You know, the younger generation is far more apt to go, yeah, sure. You know, you can have this information because they're accustomed to it. Versus, you know, people who, you know, been around a bit longer and, and understand, you know, what could happen if information isn't appropriately protected. Yeah, that is, in, and I, I like that we kind of started off at an individual responsibility, worked it out to team responsibility, and then kind of worked it out to societal responsibility. There's a, there's an obvious payback for these types of things. And I like that we covered a lot of strategy associated with for it. Sure. It's a lot of layers and it's not just, you know, one, one person. I always talk about, you know, be the master of your own data universe, but, you know, for one, shrink that universe, right? You don't need to really keep everything. And if you have, you know, the, the multi-tiered retention and the document control, you can do that a bit better, right? You know, do a data map where you can, you know, capture the information or at least have an inventory of your systems with some, you know, key facts such as ownership, contents, uh, security levels and so forth. That's the other thing too, is people, you know, oftentimes don't mark their documents as secure, contains PII and so forth, you know, and then that's that, but it is truly a team effort, you know, whether it's, you know, privacy, security, or just good record stewardship, you know, and to get to there, you have to have training and patience, you know, to know that this is not going to be an overnight effort. You may not be able to show ROI right away, or even for, you know, a couple years, hopefully, you know, within the first year would be nice. But I mean, it, it takes anywhere, you know, from six months to a year to even install one, one of these systems, if it comes down to it, you know, and, and, and if you haven't cleaned up your data beforehand, it, it could take even longer. So there's, you know, a lot of components and a lot of moving pieces. And that's why I always, you know, recommend building that action plan just beyond, you know, those policies and procedures and, and definitely shifting from governance to assurance. It, uh, thank you so much, Alona. This is a lot of fun. And maybe you could talk like we could give a hint to people if they wanted to pursue this with you. How, how do people get in touch with you? For sure. So for now, uh, as I'm finishing my last bits of my dissertation, LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out to me, you know, through, through my clients. I'm thankfully, you know, very fortunate to have a lot of referrals. Um, so before I build out my officially <laughs> uh, formal website here, um, but just contact me on LinkedIn. Um, that's, no, that's very cool. Um, I, I will respond um, pretty quickly, but even, you know, in general, if you have questions, um, if, you, if you're a student, especially, I know how hard it was, you know, I, I've had well over 300 students now over the past decade, you know, through the University of Dundee, um, and, you know, and, and definitely international um, 
groups too, you know, I, I really try to look at it from that big picture, you know, strategic perspective to see how it, it works around the world because, you know, information governance and management or assurance, I think it's, you know, it's very important and especially to developing nations as well because, you know, talk about someone who could really benefit from having value from, from their information and keeping, you know, track and metrics and, and really helping people. I think that that's what's really important. 